Mitch McConnell has represented an entire generation on Capitol Hill. There may have been somewhere between five and nine senators who were in office before Mitch McConnell took over. And it's even more true in the Senate staffer class. There is no other world. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, February 29th. Today, I'm joined by Abby Livingston to talk about Mitch McConnell and his announcement that he will be stepping down as Republican leader at the end of this year. We all know how important McConnell has been to the GOP these many years, but as Abby explains, the question now is who succeeds him in the Senate, and will that person be more friendly to Donald Trump? And later, Eric Gardner joins Ben to discuss the latest debate over the sentencing of Sam Bankman-Fried. His lawyers are recommending six and a half years, but prosecutors could ask for more than a hundred years behind bars. All those details and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Thursday, everybody. Happy February leap year. Happy February 29th. Take a walk outside, touch some grass. We don't get to enjoy February 29th so much. Uh, and if you know somebody who was born on February 29th, give them a call today. Or at least like, you know, like one of their Instagram pics or something. I'm joined today by Abby Livingston to talk about the big news in Washington on Capitol Hill, which is that Mitch McConnell, the longest serving uh, leader in Senate history, is retiring after this term from his office as a Republican leader. He will serve out the rest of his Senate term in Kentucky. Abby, I feel like if you followed politics even a little bit, this wasn't too much of a surprise. You know, he had his health scares last year. They say health is not the reason here. But McConnell was kind of hinting that he was going to, you know, call it <laughs> after this election cycle. Obviously, the three Johns, John Barrasso, John Cornyn, John Thune, have been sort of lining up to succeed him at some point. But nevertheless, really big deal. What's been the reaction on Capitol Hill in your conversations uh, with folks over the last 24 hours? It's been actually kind of quiet. And it has struck me, um, a lot of times these leadership races are crazy. And I my favorite comparison is the movie Jerry Maguire, where he and <laughs> his rival agent, Bob Sugar, are working the phones as fast as possible to hold their clients. And uh, that's sort of how these races have been characterized to me. That is not at all what it seems like has been happening in the Senate Republican conference in the last mm. day. I, I think even though this was expected and just like if you live in Washington or hang out there very much, these sorts of leadership races are discussed and the game theory is run for mm. years in advance at receptions. And it's just sort of, it's this like topic that is so much fun to sort of speculate about. And it seemed like once the bomb kind of dropped, there was a pause. And I had one source tell me that their boss, senator had to just take a moment to process it. And I think it's because Mitch McConnell has represented an entire generation on Capitol Hill. There may have been somewhere between five and nine senators who were in office before Mitch McConnell took over. And it's even more true in the Senate staffer class. There is no other world. And because McConnell has such a high stature in the among most of his colleagues, obviously Ted Cruz and several others would take issue with that. Um, <laughs> It was seen as 
kind of inappropriate in the characterization of some of my sources to be too eager to hit the phones on this one, mm-hmm. that there was a sense of let McConnell have his moment um, and that this is going to be a very slow whipping process and it may take months and months and months and we may not even have a clear sense of who it is until after the elections. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of get that vibe like with McConnell again. You mentioned Ted Cruz. There are, I think, 10 senators last year who you know had a vote to oust him as leader. But like for the most part, the Senate Republican conference falls in line, you know, behind Mitch McConnell. And I think the the general goal for the GOP is to win in November, to take back the Senate majority, hold the House for them, hopefully hold the win the White House, even with Donald Trump. And I can see the three Johns. I can see them not distracting from that goal before November. And then, you know, look, you've got the November election and then you got a couple months to kind of figure this stuff out. And, and that's, I think, typically how like a leadership race would work on Capitol Hill. Uh, obviously, the House would be much more rowdy, as we've seen over the last year. It's my understanding, and this is based a lot on your reporting and talking to you over the last year, uh, Wyoming's John Barrasso is, you know, if you can call someone like more closely aligned with the MAGA side of the party, that would be him. Thune, uh, John Cornyn of Texas. Um, NBC quoted uh, Senator J.D. Vance amusingly on Wednesday saying, quote, I plan to support John <laughs> uh, when he was asked who which of those three guys he would support. Are those the only three people? Um, would Rick Scott jump in here like he tried to? Uh, and then is there any way to handicap a front runner? Or like you said, no one's really talking about that right now. Uh, a dark horse is a possibility. But the way it was characterized to me is that sort of candidate outside of the three Johns would likely be very MAGA and rally the MAGA senators behind them. But rather than winning the race outright, uh, it was characterized to me as disruptive to the whip counts of the others. It would scramble all the calculations. Mm -hmm. I think one thing, just as a reminder that I sometimes forget when I go back and forth between chambers, it is much harder to become speaker because you have to get a majority of the chamber. And to become leader of the Senate, you just need a majority of the conference. So this is a much easier one. With regard to kind of the pecking order, this is very surface. And so take it for what it is. I've been warned to not put too much weight into this. Mm -hmm. John Thune's name comes up more often and first. And part of that is because he is the whip. That is the number two slot behind McConnell. He is from South Dakota. And interestingly, he ousted the Democratic leader, uh, Tom Daschle, in 2004. And so his name comes up. And then Cornyn's comes up. And where the kind of pushback comes is Cornyn is a very high stature senator, but he doesn't have a title. And it's because he Hmm. used to be whip and Republicans have term limits on their leadership posts outside of the the actual leader slop. Cornyn has run the NRSC, which is a thankless job, and he had it in two particularly horrendous cycles. He's sort of a gatekeeper of Texas conservative donors, which is a big deal in the Republican Party. And he has proven his ability to whip votes on legislation, and he has done things. Mm. So, and then Barrasso comes in uh, after that. But I just would stress, this is a lot of speculation, and this is going to boil down to one-on-one conversations in sort of a very elite fraternity that doesn't like to talk about these things to outsiders. So take everything I said with a grain of salt. Last thing I want to ask you, obviously McConnell and Trump don't get along. They don't really like each other, even though McConnell saw Trump as a useful idiot during his four years in office to 
appoint judges and get conservative legislation passed to the extent Donald Trump was able to do that. Uh, he wasn't that successful. And, and McConnell says his greatest achievement is blocking Merrick Garland uh, right before the 2016 election, which led to three Supreme Court justices that are conservative and that eventually overturned Roe versus Wade and other things. Donald Trump isn't shy about his criticism of Mitch McConnell. We've seen departing senators kind of feel liberated to say what they really think. Obviously, Bob Corker and Jeff Flake come to mind from the Republican caucus, but most mostly Mitt Romney recently just torching his colleagues, the MAGA ones, on his way out the door. Is it your sense that like McConnell will be like speak more freely about like where the party needs to go and what's good for the country? Or is he going to be Mitch McConnell to the very end and just, you know, do whatever it takes to get a Republican back in the White House? What's your take on that? My guess is he will not fly off the handle and freelance. And one, he doesn't have a huge history of it. And when he does cross Trump, it it may be very severe language, but it doesn't feel like it in presentations presented very calmly. Mm. But what I can probably safely assume about Mitch McConnell is he is 100% obsessed with winning these Senate races. And I don't think he will do mm. anything to divide the Republican Party before November that in a way that would jeopardize any of these potential pickups that would let the GOP become the majority again. Yeah, that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. Abby, thanks for reporting as always. Uh, big, big day on Capitol Hill. Uh, if anyone wants to learn more about Mitch McConnell, one of my favorite political books is Republican Leader by John David Dyke in, in Kentucky, uh, you know, and it really illustrates what Abby was just talking about. The only thing that matters is winning and the Republican Party. That's true for Mitch McConnell. Abby, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Peter. When we come back, Eric Gardner's here to talk about whether SBF could go to jail for 100 years. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Eric Gardner. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So on Tuesday, Sam Bankman-Fried's lawyers filed their own sentencing recommendation, arguing that he should not get any more than six and a half years in prison for the fraud that brought down FTX. There's a ton to talk about here, and the memo was almost 100 pages. I know you've scanned it. But let's start with the cornerstone of the argument, which is that, uh, according to SBF's lawyers, in the end, almost everyone is probably going to get their money back. The probation officials recommended a sentence of 100 years in prison based on what uh, SBF's lawyers say was sort of a flawed calculus that his fraud cost $10 billion. In reality, the, the crypto markets bounced back. Sam actually made some pretty smart investments, including in an AI company called Anthropic. And it looks like most of FTX's victims are going to be made whole. So, Eric, starting there with that premise, how much do you think that's actually going to factor into the judge's sentencing when he rules here? Sure. Well, let me set this up just to begin with, because six years is about what he would get for the base offense level, the base offense of, of, of committing a fraud. And then under the sentencing guidelines, there are all these upward departures from it. So the fact that, for instance, he was the organizer of, uh, of this fraud, that's an extra four years. The fact that he may have lied on the witness stand, that's an extra two years. But the biggest portion of it comes from the amount of loss that's at stake here. 
And under the sentencing guidelines, that's about 30 years. If, if it was only a few hundred thousand dollars, it would be a lot less. It would be, you know, maybe like 10 years. But the fact that, that it's been calculated at, at uh, you know, such a huge amount lends itself to, to being this amount. Where, where the ambiguity comes is there are some courts that apply what's called intended losses. So for instance, you might go to a bank to, to steal money and you, you, know, you rob the bank, you get home with all, all your loot and you find out that the, that the loot was counterfeit. And so all that counterfeit money is worth absolutely nothing. So the actual loss to the bank is nothing, but the, the fact that, that there is an intended loss is what counts. The, the problem is that, that this is nowhere in the actual statute itself for sentencing. This is based on what the U.S. Sentencing Commission has has promulgated in its kind of comments. So what we see here is, um, you know, SBF's lawyers basically playing around with this by but by saying the the, the intended loss is nowhere in, in the actual statute itself. Uh, we should take an originalist meaning of uh, of the actual statute. And when when we look at the fact that you know uh, these you know crypto assets are you know suddenly worth so much money and and um, his uh, the bankruptcy creditors are going to repay everything really the actual loss is nothing and so so there shouldn't be that upward departure of many decades in prison that's what's going on here wow I mean there's so much ambiguity there for uh, judge Kaplan to to chew over because obviously you know back when when this this fraud was sort of reaching its apex obviously um, Sam Bankman Fried siphoned off billions and billions of dollars worth of customer deposits that he was playing with and he lost that money they say that that was all unintentional um, obviously he didn't mean to lose the money and he intended to put all that money back but of course the the crypto market sort of collapsed before he could do so and, and the company imploded but then again you've got this additional layer of ambiguity which is that since then the crypto market has returned to its levels it was before i mean bitcoin just hit uh sixty thousand dollars a coin the other day and as I was saying earlier, it looks like FTX, uh, through this bankruptcy process, is actually going to make the victims whole. So there, there is a lot for Kaplan to think about here. Yeah, I, you know, I don't think that this is going to sway Kaplan. I think that if it was going to sway him, it would have swayed him at trial. I mean, SBF's previous legal team tried to get in the fact that that he always intended to repay, that 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 there were these assets out there that were actually worth a lot more money. Uh, they tried to, you know, introduce his honest intentions. And, and all that. And, and uh, you know, uh, during the whole pretrial and, and during the trial itself, I, I kept hearing Kaplan, you know, make these, you know, wild analogies to bank robbers and like separating what happens during the crime versus what happens after the crime. I do not think that this, uh, you know, it, it, at all will really sway Kaplan. Um, but I do think that that this is a, an argument that's being set up f for, for the next stage, which is uh, SBF's appeal. I think that the, the team is, is, is trying to set up a, a, an argument in the long game to argue before the Second Circuit and maybe even the Supreme Court that there were really uh, no victims here and uh, and there no there was no actual loss and so that you know whatever sentencing comes is wildly out there and I think that I think that's really what's what's happening here. Yeah, Eric, you've reported before that uh, there's a lot of white collar lawyers out there who have been sort of playing around with pushing the boundaries of uh, the legal definition of fraud and pushing for the higher courts to rule on um, potentially narrowing what counts as fraud. But going back to Kaplan's own, you know, sort of 
personal um, personal feelings towards SPF. I mean, I know they clashed a couple of times in the courtroom. You mentioned that he referred to him as a bank robber. He also leaked his ex-girlfriend's diary to the press, which was the action that got his bail revoked. How much do you think that that kind of frustration or personal feeling could spill into Kaplan's sentencing? A little bit. Uh, there definitely is no love lost between this judge and SBF. Um, but, you know, Kaplan has a reputation for being very prosecution friendly. He uh, incidentally is the same judge who was overseeing the Donald Trump, E. Jean Carroll case. Uh, and, you know, he's about to rule on the fact of whether or not Donald Trump has to put up a bond uh, to stave off uh, collections while he goes on appeal for, for that case. I would uh, assume that he'll reject that. Uh, he just has a reputation of being very ornery um, and, and not being particularly friendly to defendants. He's taken a lot of positions in this case, which, which basically made uh, the life of SBF and, and his lawyers really, really difficult. And sure, he was probably aggravated by the fact that there were leaks to the media during the during the course of, of the pretrial. He, you know, made comments during the hearings that, you know, basically indicated that he didn't really think that the lawyers for SBF were, were doing a particularly good job. You know, I expect that 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 will carry over. Um, but even if, if he had the most, you know, you know, great relationship with with the lawyers here, I, I, I still think that that, you know, it's a long shot that SBF is going to get anything less than, than you know, decades in prison from uh, his activity here. Well, he does have a new lawyer on his team, this guy, uh, Mark Mukasey. You're probably familiar with him. Uh, former federal prosecutor. He um, recently got the sentence of another white-collar client down from 11 years to four years. What's uh, what's Mukasey's reputation in the in the business? I, I presume he's sort of a more professional maybe than this team of previous lawyers who who failed to impress Kaplan. Well, there's nothing against the old uh, lawyers. They uh, they also had very good reputations. They were former prosecutors as well. Uh, McCasey uh, comes from kind of the like conservative side of, of legal jurisprudence. You know, a member member of the Federalist Society. He was one of Donald Trump's big lawyers at, at one point. Uh, you know, the fact that he's involved is interesting, uh, given the fact that that you know very well. You know, Trump might be in power uh, soon. Um, yeah. He uh, currently represents a lot of the people in some of the cryptocurrency fraud uh, schemes besides SBF. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, to even get on this case, he had to like, you know, sign a, a conflict waiver. SBF had to sign a conflict waiver. There was a hearing about that last week. But he has a pretty good reputation. Uh, he's a smart lawyer. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, we're going to see some fireworks in the, in the next uh, couple of years on this case. It sounds like Sam's family and friends are also making an emotional appeal here. When you look at the sentencing recommendations they put forward, his lawyers have um, cited his, his, quote, gifts for philanthropy. They've even compared him to Michael Milken, another uh, financial genius turned fraudster who, who reinvented himself after conviction as a philanthropist. Um, notably, they're also claiming that Sam is autistic in addition to his ADHD diagnosis, which um, played prominently at trial. Uh, they're saying, you know, because of that, he's not going to do well in prison, that in fact, his autism diagnosis might put him at physical risk in jail in terms of the sort of missed social cues that might be important in that environment. What's your sense of how this stuff sort of historically plays with judges? I mean, again, I, I know it goes just to uh, their discretion, but do you think this will have an impact with Kaplan? 
Very, very little. I think, I mean, it's usual that, that, that friends and family will, will, you know, write letters uh, right before conviction. I think what the, the goal is, is to separate uh, SBF from, you know, felons like, like Bernie Madoff or Elizabeth Holmes. They were really trying to say that, that uh, you know, this, this, this guy had much more honest intentions. They, you know, pointed to Michael Lewis's book a bunch of times, um, you know, talked about, you know, the fact that he's an, eff, eff, you know, effective altruist. Um, they had a lot of his, his professors, you know, speaking. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I, I don't think that's going to play a huge factor in the sentencing. Eric, before I let you go, um, you want to make any kind of prediction here on on what the uh, the number is actually going to be? Obviously, we don't have the prosecutor's recommendation yet, but you know, taking into account all these things you mentioned, the seriousness of the offenses, uh, Sam's criminal history, which he doesn't really have one, as well as the ambiguity around the amount of losses, um, want to take a stab at, uh, <laughs> at some kind of forecast here? I think that that he's going to get near the maximum, which is what more than a hundred years. Well, that would certainly be something. Um, and uh, presumably, or, or certainly, would set him up for that uh, appeal you mentioned. Yeah, big stakes appeal. I mean, uh, this is a case that could, you know, really travel far, maybe get to the Supreme Court. Uh, there is a circuit split on on the issue of uh, intended losses. Uh, you know, this we could look back and, and see uh, the sentencing memorandum as being kind of the first step towards that ladder. But, you know, I, <laughs> lots of people are watching this SBF case. Uh, there are pretty good lawyers involved, uh, so I don't think anything would surprise me. My, my prediction is that, that uh, prosecutors will achieve their 100-plus uh, year sentence, but if it's less than that, you know, I, it wouldn't shock me either. Well, Eric, we'll, we'll see in a couple of weeks um, what the prosecutors recommend, and then we will see shortly thereafter what Kaplan himself decrees. Thanks, as always, for joining us. This was fascinating. My pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.